BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If I say that the inanimate universe is just the extrinsic appearance of uh, universal conscious processes, universe, let's, let's call it a universal thought, then the fact that the universe is dynamic, it's behaving, it seems to have exploded from an infinitesimal point uh, uh, 13.8 billion years ago, uh, galaxies have formed, it's, it's doing something. So if that's the appearance, then what is going on from within? I think from within, what these images suggest is that um, the universal mind albeit being instinctive, just a natural mind, not a mind like ours, it doesn't seem to be very comfortable or content, because otherwise it wouldn't change its state. And the fact that its appearance is changing all the time suggests very strongly that there is a continuous change in its internal state. So it suggests to me that it's not quite comfortable. There is a instinctive impetus towards change. Now, I don't think it has a plan that it knows where it's going and how to achieve it because, you know, this kind of premeditated thinking, higher level thinking, and metacognitive thinking is something that cost nature three and a half billion years on this planet to evolve. In other words, us. So if it were there from the beginning, you know, why all this, this, this carnage for three and a half billion years uh, on this planet? So I don't think it has a plan, but it's uncomfortable. And as it is uncomfortable, it moves instinctively. And that movement has eventually led to us with our ability to metacognize and contemplate the universe and say, this is what's happening. Is this good or not? Welcome, everybody, to AM Byte. Welcome to AB Live. My name is Miguel Connor, and I am your pompous of gnosis. And yes, we are live today. I see we are live on a few pace of pace. Facebook groups, but unfortunately, our maiden voyage in Rumble has not gone. I checked. I don't know what happened. It started and it died, and this is after doing many tests today by myself with live StreamYard, but that's okay because we'll get it down, and I'm also been talking to Rockfin, and I'll get it down. So if you are, obviously, if you're listening to audio, it doesn't matter because you weren't live. If you're on YouTube, you are getting this as a replay as I've been in YouTube jail for a week for something a guest said in summer of 2022 that YouTube just decided was too controversial. Regardless, you will get the contact content in all channels. And for those of you on Facebook, glad to see you here. And uh, it's going to be a great show. With us tonight, we've got Darren King. Darren, thank you very much for coming <coughs> to the show. 
Miguel Vance, happy to be here. Happy to join you. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure. And yes, Vance, Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. I'm always excited to do a UFO show, which has been an interest of mine since I was a wee tyke. Indeed, yes, yes. It all uh and today it's there was a time when the three of us would be considered kooks. Now it's become very <laughs> mainstream. In fact, the kooks are the one telling people don't buy into the government narrative. You know, there's a lot of misinformation. Now it's it's completely switched around. Do you find that interesting, Darren, how times have changed? Absolutely. I mean, it was bizarre. I was just listening earlier tonight to uh Chuck Schumer. Uh, talking openly in the Senate about the UAP bill and uh, his frustration that didn't pass the House. But just that kind of conversation about non-human intelligence and UAPs uh, in in houses of legislature is just, you know, amazing. It truly is breathtaking. I never thought I'd uh, live to see the day, but strange times. So what do you think is going on? What is the government doing beyond stumbling over things as it usually does these days? Well, it's a great question. I mean, I think one thing I always like to point out to people is that government is a, a broad consortium of many different organizations made up of our neighbors and people with very different worldviews, different backgrounds, different belief systems. And so there is no one sort of consensus view. And in fact, I think that's one of the reasons why this has been handled so poorly over time is because there is so much uh, contradiction and paradox in the phenomenon itself that um, there isn't a strong consensus view of what this even is and what the origin is and things like that. So any government doesn't want to admit something is real when they have no way of telling you anything more about it in terms of its origin and even more importantly, how they could defend you from it uh, if it were to become hostile, uh, knowing that it can run circles around anything we possess. So I think that's kind of what's been going on is that there's been decades long research into this across multiple agencies, obviously much of it in the deep black kind of uh, scheme. But now it's at a point where I have a really interesting question that arises for me around why is it happening now? What, why is it uh, being pushed? Because you could argue that the disclosure push, even this bill that was put forward by Chuck Schumer, is so specific in the language that it's almost a kind of disclosure in its own because it uses, again, terms like non-human intelligence 20 times or something like uh -huh. that. Discusses actually reverse engineering programs that were improperly kept from congressional oversight. Like it's not just supposing that might be the case. It's saying this is the case, how they use the Atomic Energy Act improperly to hide some of this from Congress, etc. So remarkable times. Yes, indeed. Well, before we loop back on that, or if we decide to come back on all of this, uh, maybe tell the audience a little bit about yourself, as we're saying you are very knowledgeable about the topic. So tell us how Darren King became a uh, superhero, your superhero <laughs> story. Right. Well, it wasn't a spider bite. Um, yeah, in my, in my case, uh, I think... Uh, first of all, I had some of my own anomalous experiences at some point where I used to be a pretty left brain, uh, rationalist, um, physicalist kind of thinker. Uh, but then partly through experiences with a previous partner, um, just came across experiences that I couldn't deny and I had no place to put them. Um, what's interesting about the UFO phenomenon is that it's not just about UFOs and potentially extraterrestrials. It's about everything that doesn't fit within the box of reductionistic materialism, which is a pretty broad assortment. In fact, I think that's one of the challenges we face is that people think we have most of reality figured out, and this is just the cherry on top. 
where really what we're seeing is this broad opening of what is available in reality and recognizing the difference between what we have perceived versus what is actually out there. Um, but for me, it began with those kind of anomalous experiences. And I was always really fascinated by uh, abduction accounts. For instance, Whitley Struber's books uh, really impacted me as it did for many people when the front cover communion first came out in terms of that sort of sense of familiarity. Um, and then in 2017, when everything ramped up around the New York Times article, Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal, where the government basically acknowledged that these things were real um, and really dove in headfirst then. And then, of course, that raises the really interesting question about for those of us who become so obsessive about this topic, it, it's almost like there's this expression when you become interested in the phenomenon, the phenomenon becomes interested in you, sort of staring back at and that's very much been my experience is that there's been kind of this cooperative kind of engagement. So I really dove headfirst in and then ended up starting a podcast just out of my own exploration, basically. It was kind of more of an academically themed um, podcast trying to tackle different topics as they pertain to the UFO phenomenon and not just UFOs, but also the reason why I called it point of convergence is because you've got psi phenomena, you've got near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, psychedelic journeys, all of these different modalities producing similar effects in people and sometimes broadening people's worldviews and completely changing their value systems, those kinds of things. And so from that, that kind of podcast kind of took off and I started getting asked to come and speak at conferences and whatnot and join these different private retreats. And at the time, I was basically using an alien avatar, and no one knew my real name. I was going by this this uh, hashtag exoacadamian as a handle, and just had this alien um, head as as my avatar. Realized unless I wear an alien mask, I'm going to have to show people who I am when I go to these conferences. So I did that, and as I sort of stepped into that with a giant yes to just exploring the the fullness of what, what reality is and my engagement with it, everything just seemed to ramp up from there. Long story short, that's how even people with the John Mack Institute, of course, his history goes back to the 90s when he was working with the original abductees and helping to mainline this when it was such an outlier in, in culture. You may remember that he went on Oprah, for instance, and there was discussions there. So they had heard the podcast, really liked the way I talked about the topic, just in terms of not just how I describe it, but the breadth and depth of the topic uh, and the nuance involved. And so then I became the communications director for the John Mack Institute from that, I've also had, again, kind of interesting interactions with what I would call an, another intelligence that has inspired kind of what I felt called to do. And some of my closest friends, even those in academia who are engaged with this topic, it has this funny way of making you recontextualize your entire history, where suddenly you start looking back into decades past and feel like, did that happen randomly? Or is there some sort of orchestration going on kind of synchronistically? So that's where I find myself today, looking back and feeling like the entire lifetime has been recontextualized. That's great. Well, we're very happy you're doing what you're doing. And <clears throat> excuse me, I think that's the thing that we probably do agree with i mean all three of us obviously study ufos uh, i've had two extraterrestrial experience beyond just you know i don't want to say boilerplate mystic experience because they were awesome but yeah. i've had two and i always feel that the trap we've gotten into is uh 
we are still well there's the famous tom and pension quote if they can ask if they can get you asking the wrong questions they don't have to worry about the answers unfortunately we're asking the wrong questions and we're also approaching things through a uh, left-minded time is linear uh, they are like us and we'll have combustion engines and a nation state and all that. And I feel that's where we're losing the game, right? It's almost like Jung had it right. It is an interactive thing where our unconscious is projecting this to this. But at the same time, this otherness is still as real as anything else. Do you agree with this? This is where we've gone wrong? No, I absolutely agree. And um, I think that Jung had a really fascinating take. I mean, obviously, Jung wrote a lot and said some different things in different places, but there are times where he basically implied that physical reality is the flip side of the coin of the collective unconscious. So what we perceive as physical reality actually is the dynamics working out a manifestation of this underlying uh, dynamical structure in the unconscious. And I think I've, as I've looked into this topic, I've really become interested in uh, models of reality around idealism, for instance. And Bernardo Kastrup has put together a really, he's he's a Dutch philosopher, has put together a really great model called analytic idealism. And the more I think about that, those notions and the way the UFO phenomenon interacts with us, not just in terms of showing up in the sky, but being able to change our perception, being able to cater so that one person sees one thing, someone else sees another, a third person doesn't see anything at all. You know, there's this famous case that Jacques Vallée uh, brought forward a couple of years ago where this family was driving down the road in France. They looked up through their sky roof in their car and saw a giant craft. And one of the girls filmed it. One of the girls in the back seat filmed it with her phone. Now, what's interesting is they were looking around and no one else in the road was noticing the, this craft. But later on in the phone, the footage they captured was a small sort of eight-headed star, not mm-hmm. a giant craft. So something was captured on the phone, but it didn't match what they saw in real time. And even what they saw in real time was not what everybody else on the road saw. So this raises really interesting questions about the nature of reality. And like you said, the interactive aspect of it, the engaging aspect of it, and how there's this cooperative nature. And the more you look at it, the less you're able to objectively be distanced from it, which, of course, I think pulls apart our entire sort of rationalist kind of model about objective science and objectivity in general. So absolutely, that's what I think the most interesting questions arise from. But that's, I guess that's a conundrum because somebody like you, you have to use rational tools and record things to approach. You've got to be empirical to something that's not empirical. So how do you go about it, especially with all the theories? Because, you know, there's Oh, are they time travelers? Are they keels of ultra terrestrials? Are they green insectoids? Are they Ike's reptilians? And you're just, what's your set? I'm just recording it and you're all right? Or what? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I like to say that this is the one topic that leaves no other topic unscathed because, you know, <laughs> the history of human civilization, uh, human origins, the nature of reality, consciousness, all of these things are fundamentally touched by this topic. And I think. In many ways, I think you could argue that the phenomenon manifesting in the way it is, is partly meant as a prompt to shift us out of a rut in terms of our thinking. And Bernardo Kastrup, when I talked to him a few weeks ago, actually suggested that perhaps this is nature's way of, because we too are nature, of course. We are, if everything Mm -hmm. is sort of this consciousness field with these porous boundaries between each of us, but we're also an extension fractally of original source or something, then, then 
sometimes the field itself will inject information that is meant to knock us out of our rut. So he gave the analogy of if you're using AI and you're trying to teach the AI, there comes a point where, you, where you're stuck in a, a local minimum where it, it, it will be difficult to move it out of where it's at because it's working most of the time. And mm -hmm. because we have this fixation on closure as a Western civilization, we go, physicalism gets it right most of the time, so good enough. We, we sort of stopped and in some ways, you know, physicalism and, and science as it's practiced has as much sway over cultural views as did the Roman Catholic Church, you know, in the Middle Ages and whatnot. And so basically the phenomenon and specifically high strangeness, even the absurdity aspect is populated into our experience basically as his his theory so that it knocks us out of this rut so we begin to consider broader conceptions so but i think your point is really well made in the sense that even with the john mack institute one of the things we're going to be focusing on in the new year is is taking all these archives of interviews and and data that was taken from the abductees that happened in the 90s so what's interesting there is that we call this thing the ufo phenomenon but as I said earlier, that kind of is a catchphrase often for everything that doesn't fit within the narrow parameters of reductionistic materialism. So mm -hmm. what I would say is that there's different operations, different kinds of beings with different origin sources um, interacting with us. And, and reality is much more uh, uh, broad and deep and multicolored than we've given it credit for. And so what you partly have to do, I think, is not fall into the trap of assuming it's one thing and, collect and collecting all this data and then wondering why it looks so contradictory and difficult to make sense of. I think the goal is to try to keep your mind open to different kinds of experience, explore it even, don't just be open to it, but explore it. And then also look for patterns like individual patterns within the larger pattern set kind of thing. So for instance, the abduction accounts that happened in the 90s, that might be its very own enterprise. That's just one aspect of a much larger phenomenon. So that's one of the things I'm trying to focus on is, is still have that ability to look at data and, and look for patterns. But also with that, recognizing that what some people would dismiss as anecdotal data when you have thousands of people reporting the same thing with different cultural backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, people who the last thing they, in the world they wanted to believe was that they're being contacted by alien intelligence. Uh, when you have that kind of body of data uh, developed, that's a really valuable data set. And you have to look at it like that and nothing else. Well said indeed. Yeah. And uh, we've had the pleasure of uh, hosting Bernardo a couple of times here. One on Jung, one on Polish cinema, but he's always great. And I love how he says that the the prime directive of our minds is to lie to us. So mm -hmm. that's where the battle starts because from an evolutionary state, we don't see reality for it is for what it is. You know, we just care about shelter, sex, food, and a little bit of time for metaphysics, but we don't see reality for it is. It's like when I'm if I'm walking the dogs and there's a car that drives by, that car doesn't exist in the dog's mind because it's irrelevant right, to the right. purpose. And we're we're not that much more advanced than dogs, so we don't see reality for it is. So we have to almost, well, as Jung and others said, we have to create a new language that sparks our brain and we have to really start to try to go inward to find all the things that are blocking us from seeing reality until then, yeah. Like you said, it's we're going to get a lot of contradictory information. I tell people, learn about chaos theory, because then you'll see that 
A, it is chaos. There's a lot of data out there, but there are patterns and there is a beauty harmony to everything that's going on in this jungle. And all these things do have a a pattern, a harmony, a, a right. beat. That's how right. you can understand all these different aliens and all that. So what do you think, Vince? Oh, yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, the, you know, none of us will ever see reality, quote unquote, even in our local vicinity. So it's not surprising that something that's not ordinary you know, manifests itself as uh, different experiences. Um, I was wondering, uh, Darren, um, what 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 do you think? Uh, well, I got so many questions, but um, since you're associated with John Mack, do you think that his death was accidental, or do you think that maybe some mysterious forces decided that he was too dangerous? I'm I'm pretty positive that it was accidental. I've seen, uh, you know, the information around, you know, the uh, the actual time of death and what happened, and I've seen the police reports, and I know that that was one of the things that floated out there. Certainly, people wondered if because of the work he was doing, not just around the abduction phenomenon, but also around um, life after death. He was really exploring that towards the last yeah. few years of his life. Um, but yeah, if everything I've seen convinces me that it was it was accidental, and I have close friends and colleagues that were close with him then and really looked into the the matter and concluded that as well. Well, that's kind of comforting, I guess. Yeah. Um, uh, shifting gears, another question I had for you is, um, what do you think um, beyond the you know save the Earth type messages, which are very plentiful among you know UFO and alien lore? What do you think the aliens have really taught us or are trying to teach us um, besides the ecological message? Well, that's a great question. I think that ties very much into what I was referring to earlier in terms of the impetus of uh, what was the catalyst for the kind of things that I'm uh, working on now and developing around like non-dual understandings and and oneness, unity consciousness kind of thing. Um, so often what's interesting is when people have encounters with these others depending on the sort of developmental consciousness of that person, they might report similar things, but interpret it very differently. So if you have a very strong attachment to a small self ego that I'm this person born in this place to these parents with this job, et cetera, then just sometimes by being in the presence of these others, not to mention, of course, this happens in near death experiences as well. This is part of the really interesting overlap here. But your yeah. small self ego is dissolved. So, so some people experience that as a kind of death. And the more attached you are to that small self conception, the more it's going to feel like death. To other people, it feels like liberation, especially if they're less attached to that. So my sense is that a major part of the messaging is around the reason why many of the problems are manifesting in the world they are right now is because we fundamentally misunderstand who we are, how we're connected to each other, how we're connected to the planet and the larger cosmic community. So that kind of understanding about the illusion of separation, I think is really central and is key to the work that I'm focusing on as well. Oh yeah. For example, all these different religions to say our God is the real God and everybody else should be wiped out right? <laughs> or, or, or converted or whatever. Yeah. That's one of the big ones. Yeah, and I think it, what I often point to there is that religion is basically a byproduct of stages of consciousness rather, rather than the other way around. So if you look at something like fundamentalist Islam, it's not so different than fundamentalist Christianity because it's more about a stage of consciousness, a worldview by which you see the world, and then conceptions are formed from that stage of consciousness. 
And so even things like Ken Wilber's spiral dynamics, this sense of that there's these ordered and predictable stages of consciousness that are emergent. It's a, an emergent pr- part of a reality that, again, this goes down to not only how people look at this religiously. That's one of the really interesting questions right now is that there's such a basically a collapse of these pre-existing categories around there's UFOs and aliens. And then there's angels and demons coming from, you know, the the other world kind of thing. And actually those things collapse into some other category altogether. So that's one of the most fascinating aspects of this entire enterprise is that it collapses and transcends so, so many of our convenient uh, historical kind of ways of seeing the world. You look at something like what happened in Fatima in 1917 in Portugal. Right. The Catholic Church interpreted that as basically the mother Mary, right. And, uh, an, a Marian apparition, but you know, people like Jacques Vallée have gone in and looked at the exact same data, not the interpretation, not the way that it was classified, but the data itself, including the weeks leading up to then when there was numerous UFO sightings, uh, orbs, the floating leaf kind of, uh, behavior we yeah. see that's so common in other enterprises to do with the UFO phenomenon. And it easily fits within the UFO phenomenon case as it does in something like a a religious kind of apparition. But this just speaks to how there's the data and there's the the crunching and the truncating of that data to try to fit it into these pre-existing categories. But what I see happening, this is the part that's really interesting about the interactive nature of this, is that it seems like something, whether you want to call that the collective unconscious itself, these other intelligences, higher aspects of ourselves, I think there's numerous ways uh, that you can think about this and that in a realistic way that plays a role. But it seems to be b- trying to break us out of this rut we're in, possibly because of what I referred to earlier in the sense of our illusion of separation that we're buying into being so fundamental to some, many of the problems that are manifesting. But these problems are becoming ever more dangerous, that we are on the verge, the precipice of, of collapse and self-destruction. And so the necessity to break us out of this rut has never been more paramount. And so you could argue, again, depending on how you look at it in terms of who's doing it, nature itself, uh, higher consciousness, other intelligences, collective unconscious. But you could definitely argue that, and I would argue that all of that's related, that the disclosure push we're seeing the ramping up of sightings that are happening, even with the military groups and whatnot, and the challenges we are facing as a civilization, not in, not the least of which is you know, emerging AI. All of these things are coalescing and are related to each other. I, I see it the same way. You know, the defense contractors have to be brought into this uh, scenario too, because um, from my experience, the government doesn't really do a lot themselves. They, they contract it out to experts of technology and so forth, like, for example, crash vehicles and so forth. You got to wonder, you know, even they might even have the, uh, the, the uh, captured ETs or whatever in there, uh, which reminds me, I was going to ask you, um, what do you think about the, the, this narrative about the tall grays and the Nordics and the reptilians? Do you think that's, that's a, something that's more or less real? Right. This is the real question. And it's it's interesting because someone I know as a colleague is a man named Joseph Burks that worked uh, with Stephen Greer in the 90s and then kind of because of differences went mm-hmm. in different directions, but has been part of the CE5 slash human initiated contact experiences kind of yeah. uh, movement. And what's interesting there is that, um, you know, we, we, we don't know... Um, 
we know how they're presenting, right? So they certainly present in people's experience as these individual entities. Now, he would argue that much of what people are seeing is a kind of virtual interface that is being projected uh. into our reality. But w the reason I question even deeper than that, again, along the line, thinking of Bernardo Castro, if the entire thing is a field of mentation that just appears to us as a dreamscape, uh. and we assume that's physical reality, then everything is is virtual in that sense. And I would say that even from like a Vedantic Buddhist kind of way of seeing the world, that, mm. that all manifestation is kind of virtual. It's it's kind of not base reality, really. And then you're just at these different levels of dreamscapes and interpenetrating dreamscapes. And I think that's even a more helpful way to think about some of these interactions. So whether or not these beings are actually, you know, coming from Alpha Centauri and they're, you know, they're actually reptilians and uh short grays, tall grays, tall whites, all these different, you know, Nordics, these kinds. Again, some people would argue Mike Masters is a good friend of mine who's an evolutionary biologist who's made the argument that um, the, the common forms, the humanoid forms, even the fact that reptilians, uh, you know, seem to be not just potentially humans, but actually splicing in the DNA of reptiles and things that already exist on the earth. So yeah. he's made the argument that these are future versions of humanoid forms once we've started playing with dna more that's possible too i also th think it's well documented in the literature that some of these kinds can shape shift and and bernardo again in my conversation with him went as far as to say that some of these might be coming from beyond our usual manifestation space and they use bodies as a symbol. They communicate, it's a form of communication. The body itself that they appear as is a symbol. And you could even argue that again, going back to the case in Fatima appearing as a small woman, uh, you know, is going yeah. to make people have connotations of nurturing and safe safety and trust and even yet yeah, religious connotations too. But again, even there, what's interesting is, Valais made the point that it's almost like whatever that being was started playing up the religious connection only after it started seeing how the people in the area were receiving it as a kind of Catholic apparition kind of thing. So it's it it plays with our pre-existing conceptions and our and our meaning-making model. So I know that's a complex way of answering that. I think we do have to take at face value that people are experiencing these beings in these forms. And, and so that certainly lends credibility to the fact that they may actually be forms that are, you know, ontologically distinct and have their own, uh, you know, existence. And you think even about DMT experiences, though, because what's fascinating there is that different people will encounter the machine elves. So through psychedelic journeys, <laughs> you get these, these, you know, distinct but consistently arising forms, similar behavior, similar appearances. Is that really how they are? I mean, these are interesting questions. It's like whenever I answer these questions, I'm always giving caveats because it begs deeper questions about the assumptions we're making. But at the very least, certainly they present that way very frequently to people. Yeah. And we're not seeing reality for what it is. So what do you want to see aliens for what they are? <laughs> I think that's, you got to start with that question. And then of course, oh, you're being Zen Buddhist. Well, yes, because, right. you know, as Bernardo says, we're just all of, there's one consciousness and it's disassociated itself into right. Darren, Moondog, Miguel. And it's sort of fragmented the Gnostics and the Hermetics. You know, we're all sparks of the divine that fell into matter or the, the right. Kabbalah and the tree of life or Hinduism has a million versions of this. And I think uh, 
it just goes back to consciousness, right, Darren? Yeah. Yeah. Some are more ethereal than others, though, of course, you know. It's hard to. I mean, all my life, I have never really had a really solid UFO experience. I've had mystical experiences, you know, but I haven't seen anything, you know, with my eyes. I mean, I've seen a couple of things that look like they may have been UFOs through uh, night vision binoculars. And I saw like a tumbling candle one time that I'm pretty sure must have been a booster that was reentering <clears throat> that I followed for, I don't know, 20 minutes through binoculars. But, um, but yet, yet, you know, I always wondered why I couldn't, you know, I've never, me who was interested since I was reading Donald Kehoe in my grandmother's living room <laughs> um, when I was about seven, that I've, I've never, I've never seen anything. The aliens don't love me. You know, I don't know. It's very ethereal to me, but other people see all sorts of stuff yet. You know, mm -hmm. like my wife can see every once in a while manifestations of things that I can't. Yeah, my wife sees shadow people. She sees behind the veil. I think maybe her pineal gland is not as calcified as mine. That could be. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, who knows? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's up, really interesting uh, because even I mean, Gary Nolan has has been doing research into this. Literally, the way that the brains of people who tend to have these experiences look different than the brains of those who don't. And what was at first thought to be damaged matter of the brain looks now to look like additional connections, mm. um, bridges, and the same part of the brain that's responsible for intuition. And there's a fine line between intuition uh -huh. and sort of psychic understanding. And so he even goes so far as to say that we might be seeing a speciation kind of event where there's a, a distinct a group of humans who have the capacity to perceive these additional kind of realms, these different categories of existence, at, and that some other people don't. Um, I know that to the point you were making earlier, and I want to share an experience because it speaks to this, uh, but I remember my, because one of the things that Gary Nolan's talked about as well is that it also tends to go in families, like a, across family lines, which of course we think about the abduction phenomenon, often that's over three generations. So it's really, really interesting around the questions of, is this something that is distinctly unique from birth about abductees and experiencers that allows them to have these experiences? Or are they being augmented in some way as part of these abductions that then increase their capacity? <coughs> I think there's some both and going on. Gary Nolan, again, makes the point that, um, that he's looked back at MRIs of people even long before they had the experiences and he can already see those additional connections. Wow. So that's really fascinating. Um, in my case, I know my dad had anomalous experiences that my mom didn't have on their honeymoon. He saw being at the end of, of their bed in, uh, in, in Spain and my mom didn't see it. Now the experience I was going to share that was been the most sort of paradigm crashing for me was at one point in 2005, I was traveling across the country with my young family at the time. My wife was multiple months pregnant with our son, and we had our three-year-old daughter with us. And in the early morning hours, I awoke to see a humanoid female entity uh, at the end of the bed mm -hmm. and proceeded to get out of the bed, surprised by what I was seeing. And this being walked backwards and right through the wall, and disappeared through the wall. Wow. And then I, I did something that was really strange, but again, only later realized this is quite common in the UFO phenomenon is people do strange things behaviorally. I turned around to come straight back to bed as if nothing untoward had happened. 
<laughs> thankfully, and this is the part that's like, again, it raises questions around how many people are having the experiences and not realizing it. Thankfully, my wife at the time also saw it. So she kind of shook me out of my stupor and said, what are you doing? Go back to sleep. You saw what we just saw. <laughs> and what was weird is when I came back to bed, she saw the being come back through the wall, proceed to walk down the corridor and out the front door. Not, of course, open the door, just going out the door. Mm -hmm. So then we, you know, conferred amongst ourselves. What are we going to do? We're going to get out of here. We're not going to stick around for the continental breakfast. And so we, we got hit the road. But that was an experience for me where several interesting things occurred to me. Number one. If she hadn't also seen it, I probably would have dismissed it and thought it was a dream, right? The fact that both of us independently saw it was confirming. But even then, there were subtle differences when we compared notes about what we saw. There's subtle differences in the nature of the being, which again speaks to what I said earlier about they seem to be able to control our perceptual set. And um, and but for me, that what was- did he, that was What did he look like? If you don't no, it was a she. she. It, it looked, looked basically human. Oh. It looked human. Oh, like, there was something slightly female. weird about it. Yeah, it was okay. a female. Uh, mm. And so one of the subtle differences is that I just saw long kind of blonde hair. And my wife at the time saw the hair blowing in the wind, like as if it was like there was like a, a source of wind. And I didn't see that. Mm. So it's one of those really interesting things where you both see something anomalous. So it grounds it in reality for you. But at the same time, there's these subtle differences that are that are really, really interesting. And for a long time and decades uh, in the UFO phenomenon lore, this was, this was underplayed that the ufologists that wanted to get this accepted in the mainstream, right. Tried to make this all about ETs from Alpha Centauri and, and spacecraft and basically either rejected stories that had too much high strangeness or they downplayed or didn't include those parts in, in the, in the reports. Whereas of course, High strangeness is central to this entire enterprise. And even from Bernardo's point of view, because one of the things he did on my podcast was he shared, I think for the first time, an experience he had when he was a, like a 10-year-old of seeing something he considered just absurd. It wasn't technological. It wasn't organic. It was just absurd. It was something that couldn't possibly exist as it was in our reality. And yet it was happening. And so these kind of outliers are seem to uh, serve to unmoor us from this way of seeing the world. Fascinating. And yeah, you, you kind of broke a trope when you said you and your wife left the hotel. I know you've heard the joke that Eddie Murphy and other black comedians do that something supernatural, black people are like, we're out of here. But white people are like, yeah, it's going to be fine. We'll be fine. So <laughs> right. You right, broke exactly. the trope. <laughs> yeah. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sports you'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome and if you think the fun stops there the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store check out daily promotions same game parlays live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 
And it is. Go ahead, Vince. You know that that that's um, that speaks to the projection argument. That phenomenon. That uh, you know, uh, common sightings. Um, diff- people um, produce different you know experiences, because if you think about it, our minds are trying to train by experiences and so forth. And I, I always think of it as a mind wave. Each moment of our experience is like a certain wave, but that wave is personal to us. And they're doing research on that, right? Where they can try to read them. But yeah. the same thing that you look at will come up as different waves in different people, right? So yeah. if something was projecting the waves into us, they can't guarantee that the experience would be exactly the same, maybe close. Right. right. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you've, you guys have mentioned several times that reality is not what we think it is and not what we perceive. I'm sure you've discussed or come across Don Hoffman's work. In I was terms just of, thinking of him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I see he and Bernard are as two brilliant yeah. sides. That Absolutely. Are destroying yeah. reality, but from different approaches. Absolutely. And, and it, it's, it's such a, it's a grounded objective argument that Don is making that, yeah. um, that the the chances and he was a materialist. He, makes, he was a you know what I mean the most atheistic person you could totally, meet. Totally, yeah. And he's like, oh my god, it's all. And a he's lie. not. He's not. <laughs> and this is where our prejudices and our biases um, end up filtering in, even within a physicalist model. So the physicalist uh, assumption is that we're seeing reality as it is. Sure, we might be only seeing a truncated version, but we're seeing a slice of what's out there. And what Hoffman makes the point of is that actually the chances are exactly zero that we're seeing a direct correlation to what's out there. What we're seeing is this shortcut interface, like a, like a desktop screen with a trash can. That trash can is not at all indicative of, of zeros and ones and binary code. It just serves as a way for us to navigate this incredibly barrage, uh, incredibly complex barrage of data, right? So this goes back to what we were saying before about this being about much more than just UFOs and aliens and ghosts and apparitions. And it, 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 you know, it, it's about reality itself. This is inc- <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so these are really interesting things that, that science itself now, even, you know, the, the revelations coming out of quantum mechanics, recognizing that space time seems to be derivative of some deeper process. Like the math mm-hmm. is telling us now these, these cutting edge scientists are saying space time is a dead end, right? As Don Hoppen likes to say, you know, uh, it's doomed. Space-time is doomed. And what he means by that is that as a foundational model, it doesn't work. So it must be like the platonic shadows on the wall. Space-time is the shadows on the wall. Something deeper is going on. And I would argue some of these intelligences are aware of and working from that deeper sort of construct. And that's why it appears to us to be so counterintuitive and sometimes absurd. Yeah, sometimes I'm sitting there and my cat's on the desk and it's just staring out staring out at nothing for sometimes half an hour i'm like are you seeing something i'm not seeing maybe it's seeing <laughs> reality for and it's like this is better than you watching tv human foolish human <laughs> i think well, there's something to that now. there's some things i can't talk about but i would say that i'm aware of some people who uh have a, an extraordinary ability to see some of these others and they will mm. make the argue they will say to me that there are times where other people around cannot see them, but the cat can see them. Ah, there you go. Well, cats were, yeah, they're in myth, in mythology is one of those cat those cats, those animals that can go in between the worlds. Lions, yeah. cats, owls, or certain animals that were are able to go to the liminal places right. to the other right. side. So. You mean the owls yeah. aren't what they seem? <laughs> 
Ah, uh, we finally have a pun. Well, a cliche, I suppose. And, yeah, and, and it's, that it's, one too, absolutely. I mean, how, how again, we talked before about shape-shifting. I mean, often in these abduction accounts, they first appear as owls or they can appear as, appear as construction workers who are like stopping traffic, right? It can be deer, uh, you know, that, that only later on in hypnotic regression, they go, wait a second, that wasn't an owl. That was like five feet tall. What kind of owl is five feet tall, you know? And, and those kinds of things. And this sort of telepathic lock that happens when they notice the owl, right? And there's like a the download of information. So it seems that, again, they are able to play with our perceptual set to interact with us in ways that um, help us bridge between these, what would otherwise be these really disorienting kind of experiences. Yeah, you know, Twin Peaks was actually uh, based on um, the UFOs, even though UFOs didn't appear in the show. But um, Mark Frost, if you read the, the stuff that he wrote, it's, you know, he, he kind of brings that out a little more. And the owls were tied to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the high strangeness is is front and center in that show. And that's one of the reasons oh, yeah. why I loved it. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of high strangeness, as many know on this show, I'm releasing a book on Elvis, who is very much an occultist. And you're aware that he had three major extraterrestrial experiences where he wasn't <laughs> alone. He was with Vernon. He was with the Memphis Mafia. And he describes them. And they're all the three, you know, one is the lights that move around. One is the saucer. One, it's this light that comes in and all that. So he was all into UFO, Book of Enoch, uh, Von Daniken, Chariots. I mean, the whole thing, you know, White House is hiding information about, you know, the truth of the governments and all that. But uh, so what other speaking again, high weirdness is kind of place where pop culture and mysticism and psychedelics mix. What other celebrities do you know that have had some intense uh, UFO experiences? I know. I think well, that's David a great question. Bowie because is one. Yeah. Yeah. John Lennon, right? Famously. You're saw. right. John Lennon. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting too with Elvis because I just did a podcast on uh, someone named Artie Six Killer Clark. She's uh, she's an American Indian background and she mm-hmm. taught in Montana and she was able to go into uh, different indigenous groups around the world, both in America and South America and whatnot, and gather stories that otherwise would never have made it into the outer world kind of thing. Very and cool. what's interesting is they they seem to, in fact, even part of their history, their lore, their understanding of their very origins is tied to what they call the star people. So you mentioned Elvis and he had partially an American Indian background, right? So mm-hmm. um, this becomes really interesting. And again, blows open these notions we have about human history, human origins, I think there's even really complex that we have different kinds of origins and that while that's not politically correct and it's unpopular to talk about those kinds of things, I think the data seems to suggest that's the case. So um, this is this is fascinating to me. And in this podcast I just did on this work that RD6 Clear Clark has has gathered, very often people would, and this speaks to the collapsing of categories we spoke about earlier, someone would be in Vietnam and and just kind of like, in exasperation, say, I'm done shooting people. I'm going to put down my gun. If I die, I die, but I'm not going to be the aggressor. And they pray to Jesus for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they see a light come down. They're levitated off the ground. Uh, they are in a place that's kind of like foggy and wispy, but it's like a room. And they think that maybe they're in purgatory or something. Then uh, a humanoid blue human that's eight feet tall comes in. So they have part of this as their lore is these blue men that appear. They're eight feet tall, look basically human otherwise. But even these beings talk about they have developed, again, 
this is where it's so interesting about it. They have developed the capacity to mostly manifest as light beings, but they can also sort of transfer into a physical form if they need to. But of course, what's ironic there is that he's praying to Jesus and then a kind of religious experience happens. But then he later on finds out about the history of this race that came from a different planet. Apparently that's the lore anyway. That's what they told him. And of course, this collapses our, our categories and it shows how even at different points in history, how we've been able to conceive of these things has shifted. And so this points to Jacques Vallée's work around Passport to Magonia, right? Looking back at ancient fairy lore and mm-hmm. religious experiences and, and drawing the parallels with more recent accounts of abductions and whatnot. But even there, I would I really want to point out that Again, I think we have this tendency to want to have closure and we want to come up with simple answers. And so we say, well, sure, maybe gray aliens are fairies. And I'm like, I actually don't think that's the case. I think fairies are <laughs> I think gray aliens are a thing. Like, I think they're both exist. But no again, wings, our no. desire to like come to simple conclusions, we collapse them. I think it's worthwhile to consider the similarity in the data sets. But I think also uh, it's more complex than that. And again, this speaks to just what we're on the cusp of trying to make sense of here is this incredibly complex barrage of reality that is this so beyond the the tiny slice that we've been open to so far yeah and that's the other enemy too darren is uh as freud said uh, the greatest uh, fear that humans have is ambiguity we cannot handle it because you know we, we're not very strong we're hairless monkeys right we don't have claws wings so pattern recognition and the constant is how we survive out there but ambiguity just kills us we can and i always tell people just you know well what about this and you just sometimes you just got to embrace the ambiguity and let it come to you it's just absolutely i mean i think uh even when you look at different religious traditions that talk about you know uh, approaching this as a as a young child basically it's not because you're trying to be ignorant it's about you're trying to be open-minded it's about not having fixed views right and and still having this wonder in terms of how you interact with reality like mm-hmm. it's ironic to me that we spend so much time in western civilization trying to lock down things for what well i'm like embrace the mystery stay open-ended and like you talk yeah. about with chaos theory if 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 the cosmos itself is is the expansion, the expression of source exploring itself, then there yeah. is no final answer. That's that's an eternal, ever evolving um, kind of process, which is much more interesting to me. It's just more a beautiful fun. aesthetic. Yeah, that's all it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, though, there's two problems that, that I think cause us to get trapped here. Number one, lack of access. I mean, if I wanted to go out and meet an, um, any kind of you know other entity from some non ordinary reality, it's like not free to do that i mean at least no way i have and the other problem is this people lie so if people lie to you then you don't know who to believe see so people go oh i saw an alien well how do i know he's telling the truth you know Mm -hmm. i mean you know how many hoaxes there have been like you know the people that photograph their dining room light reflection (laughs) in the window it looks just like a ufo right you know so so the liars ruin it for us and then our own inability to contact these things. And like you said, it might be inherent, you know, we might be throwbacks, some of us that, that can't do it. I think those two things have to be surmounted before we can maybe make progress on this. Yeah. And and on top of that, you've got AI image generation now and video generation where (laughs) the the human eye can't possibly determine what is real and what's not. I sometimes people say, see people saying that looks fake to me or that looks (coughs) 
we're, we're well beyond the human eye to be able to yeah. notice these things. We need, we need software that's racing against itself to generate it and then recognize that it's generated, right? Um, I think what I do in terms of the hoaxers and the people that are making stuff up is I look at the, the, the body of data and I trust in that. So if you have this bell curve, you're going to have a certain portion that are going to be, um, you know, lies, frauds, mental illness, for sure. There's going to be a tiny percentage of that. But what I, when I see thousands of reports describing very similar kinds of encounters, not only with the craft, but also with the beings and then, and the nature of the encounters themselves, that to me speaks to the veracity of the accounts is that, uh, the chances that th these many thousands of people from different backgrounds who, again, many of them, when you talk to them, the last thing they want to acknowledge is that this has happened to them. These are not UFO enthusiasts who are just waiting for something to happen. They are people who had no interest in it, and yet it seemed to happen to them. So I trust more in that than I do in any individual account. Yeah. Also, if you happen to have contact with people who are real in special places, like I knew um, a couple of people years and years ago now that um, were actually part of the Manhattan Project. And um, the uh, the gal, I never heard from her husband, but the gal that was, um, you know, that was also there, she, she was apparently um, in charge of a lab, a photo photography lab, high, high energy photography lab, told me that she and her husband were on this ship one time and they saw a craft go over the ship and it was pretty close up and, they they knew they were familiar because of their jobs with all the different technologies you know in in the air that we had and they said we definitely know that you know we knew that it wasn't one of ours so, yeah absolutely uh, and actually i'm glad you brought that up because one of the revelations that's come out more recently is that the ufo phenomenon was wrapped up with the manhattan project that's many of the people working oh, on the top secret technology uh, around atomic energy were also ones looking at the craft that had been recovered. I've, you know, of uh, course, one of the interesting notions is that some of these craft, again, it's not just wreckage. Sometimes it's entirely intact craft that are just found on the desert landscape kind of thing. And of course, the lore suggests that there's been some reverse engineering that happened from that. There's even the question around, did some of the, the atomic breakthroughs happen because of material analysis that was done? So, and on top of that, Basically, because this was happening all around the same time, which in itself is a really fascinating, you know, coincidence, right? That that so much of the like Roswell and all these these things, Trinity that happened, these sightings, these crashes, right at the dawn of the atomic era, in the very places, right? right? So you've got the Trinity crash that Valet, uh, you know, cataloged in one of his books, happening at the very site where the Trinity test site was happening, right? So. So something clearly is going on there. And then on top of that, you've got these really well-documented accounts, which what's so bizarre, this is not making more headline news in our culture, but where UFOs literally show up at nuclear weapons facilities oh, and yeah. shut down the silos, right? right. And, yep. and, and so that you know prompts the question, what's going on there? But yeah, I've heard that because of the layers of secrecy that were developed around the Manhattan Project, that was basically transferred into much of the UFO phenomenon uh, exploration as well. And that somehow the two were wrapped up together, which just speaks to the fact that whenever we do get some form of a official disclosure, it's going to be such a rewrite on our contemporary understanding of 20th century history, because yeah. some of the most impacting events of, of the 20th century are wrapped up somehow one way or another with the UFO phenomenon. 
yeah, we've been lied to all these years. I remember once when I was a tour, uh, um, I was on a tour of the FAA uh, Air Traffic Control Center in Fremont, California here. And um, I was brave enough to ask the tour guide who is, you know, a manager of the air traffic controllers. Well, well, what do you, what, what about UFOs? You guys see UFOs? And he got so ferocious. There's no such thing as UFOs. Now <laughs> uh, on the face of it, of course, there's such a thing as unidentified flying object. I mean, I, right. I didn't say aliens or flying saucers. I mean, they find blips on the radar all the time, but he, he protested too much. Right, exactly. The the fuss is the tell, as they say, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, the absolutely. saying, uh, never believe anything until it is officially denied by the government. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, nothing is, more, nothing is more challenging to the powers that be than some phenomenon that makes all of our energy sources, uh, our economic structures, and our power structures obsolete. And that's what this basically uh, brings forward as a possibility. And so, again, when you have a government that has this handshake agreement with the populace that it's here to protect us and from all enemies, you know, foreign and domestic. And yet there's these things that with impunity can enter people's homes, can take them, can go to nuclear facilities and shut down silos. You know, there's even revelations that have come out now that during the Cold War, there was this kind of back channel that was established between the Soviet Union and America so that we would get on the phone and say, just so you know, that's them again. That's not us. So don't launch an nuclear <laughs> right. like, Literally, I have friends who've actually looked into this and found documents that, that speak to this, that you know, there's a certain line that was uh, engaged with when this was happening for fear that some manifestation of the UFO phenomenon could prompt World War III. So this literally happened. And there's this sort of understanding on both parts that this was going on. And let's not let this be the, the impetus for war by accident. Wow. Yeah. When we find out we're not the apex predator, it's very humbling. <laughs> indeed, well, let's indeed. hope they're not predators so otherwise we're in trouble with their capabilities <laughs> it reminds me of this story i don't know if you've heard it darren where in the 80s after et came out reagan invited steven spielberg to do a private screening or it would be an honor and they went there and steven spielberg was just playing et and of course reagan back then you know much like Biden, there wasn't much up there. It was start, you know, things right. weren't there. So of course Reagan is falling asleep and he's kind of watching and he giggles and he's like, "If they only knew what it really was like." And Steven Spielberg is like, "Holy moly, <laughs> he knows." Yeah. So yeah, kind of yeah. gives it away. Well, yeah, that, Rich, that famous speech he gave at the United Nations, right? If only um, there was an extraterrestrial threat, that might be the the one. Uh, you know, eventuality that would end uh, global warfare amongst humanity and actually unite us. Yeah, that's yeah. Star Trek gen new generation. That's the whole plot. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Ben Rich, you know, who used to lead Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, flat out said that we have the technology to, you know, go, go to the stars. He said yeah. it, and nobody ever called him, you know, senile or crazy or anything else like that. It's just what he put it out there and crickets you know and he also implied that consciousness was the key key aspect of it that in terms of how it operated right and really, so that's, I, didn't, that's, I didn't hear that part Whoa. yeah yeah and and that that's so much of the lore is that some of this hardware has been sitting you know in hangars for 80 years and the challenge was even getting the stuff to turn on and operate because it seems to work with a direct sync with some of the beings and on top of that 
there's evidence now suggesting that even some of the beings might be really, really advanced, semi-organic kind of AI that are actually part of the craft. So there's this syncing yeah. between the technology of the being and the craft, which if you think about it in the you know long distance of the future, that makes some sense. And so what they've been trying to do is un unwrap the, the consciousness piece to even be able to power these things. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. And one of the revelations that came out from David Grush coming forward and making the allegations he did that sort of spurred this entire disclosure push was that so much of the lore is is true in some way or another. Of course, part of the challenge, like you were saying, people hear that and they don't, you know, they don't jump on it, partly because there's been this disinformation campaign to make sure you like leak out some lies in the midst of the truth so that people get exhausted and, and give up trying to understand what's going on because they feel like it's impossible to sort the wheat from the chaff kind of thing. But what's interesting is many of these aspects that have been part of the lore indeed seem to be what's really going on. And so even around like accords between some elements of the military industrial complex and some of these others. And in terms of what you guys were saying earlier about whether or not they're hostile or not, I would again bring in the non-duality piece. And I would say that really depends on their perspective in terms of who they are, who we are, how far along they are in that non-dual understanding. I think some of the most ascendant ones that have the most non-dual perspective are the most like hands-off and and using uh, you know subtle uh, inspirations into our minds. Again, you mentioned earlier famous people who've had encounters. You know, this is a famous part of like the, the idea of a muse, right? The, this idea that musicians, artists, scientists, right? Even scientists who who everyone thinks are like straight lace, you know, objective scientists use the scientific method, often refer to these inspirations that came. Mm -hmm. Even people like Gary Nolan, again, modern day scientists will say that he'll consider all the complexities of a problem put it in the back of his mind and go to sleep. And then it'll come to him over and overnight. So on the one hand, you could say that's the human subconscious doing some really miraculous things, but he's also made the argument that, or brought forward the idea that he's had encounters himself with some of these beings going back to when he was a kid. He saw something, a UFO up close when he was a kid. So again, this engagement, this interaction, uh, some of our innovation may be because of this interaction and this engagement with these other aspects of reality. It's, it's really fascinating. Oh, yeah, the quantum physicists uh, in the early 20th century, Wolfgang Pauli, Erwin Schrodinger, you know, I'm sure you know the quotes. Yeah. Um, that they, they, were, they were hip to this. They were. They were. Yeah, they became mystics because of what they did. Yeah. That's the part that's so fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, and Wolfgang was a friend of Jung and was helping him saying, you know, synchronicity is a completely oh. scientific phenomenon. And totally. I love that. I mean, Bernardo talked about that on, on my podcast with him. Uh, you know, and it, it, you know, the idea that in, 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 on, on mass, on average, you have things that look like determinism, but actually individual experience is completely synchronistic. Mm -hmm. And that was fascinating. And yeah, it's really interesting. Bernardo talked about their, their letters between each other when they're trying to work this out. And they had an earlier model of synchronicity and then came around and said, wait a second, it does, doesn't, doesn't just happen at the quantum level. It's the nature of reality itself. Right, which is really, really interesting. And part of what's been so confounding, but also fascinating and inspiring for me is that when I mentioned earlier making that decision to sort of say yes to everything that was sort of like coming my way and just really engaging with that, it suddenly felt like 
I was in this one stream and entered into the course of a larger river and its current was taking me. And it feels like there's this synchronistic orchestration is the way I describe it. That's been happening for the last two years for me that again, my old left brain objective self would completely <laughs> reject. Like, I, I don't even know how I'd have a conversation with who I was 20 years ago because the views are so, so different, like fundamentally different. And it, it's almost preposterous in how much it like, it, it, it compounds itself and it shows you over and over and over and over again that it, reality is not what you think. And even this really bizarre, speaking of high strangeness, phenomenon around repeating numbers that people experience with this phenomenon, which is such a strange thing, right? So for me, 444 shows up all the time, like ridiculously, uh, you know, is it is it the case? And it, it just, again, you know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night have this sense of like, why, why is the hair standing up my, on, on my skin? Why does something feel like something just happened? I'll look at the clock and it's 440, 444. I mean, oh, wow. this happens so, so often. And it, it's, it's like something's trying to almost like make you realize this is the matrix in a way that this is, this is just the construct. There's a reality beyond that. I would almost argue that there's sometimes prompts Again, this is where it's really interesting because you could even argue this could be your higher self, right? Because I think one of the fascinating aspects of this is that we ourselves are multidimensional beings. And again, we're only like lensing one frame, right, in this reality. But through different experiences with the phenomenon, with psychedelic journeys, whatnot, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, people often see something else. And even in my own case, I've had experiences where... I felt like I was in touch with another kind of like collective intelligence. So it wasn't just one being, it felt like an entire like civilization that had evolved to the point of, again, a non-dual understanding. So it kind of functioned as a collective. And what was interesting about it was that I felt like I was part of that. Like it uh, didn't just feel like I was an individual speaking to this other, I was somehow part of that as well, which made me feel like these are different components of my selfhood. So that raises really interesting questions about what all this is as well. Well said. Well, tell us a little bit about some of your project as we get towards the end of the interview. Tell us about your essence of being initiative, Darren. Yeah, so basically what happened there was because of some of these experiences, like I just mentioned, where I realized that that small self-understanding, that illusion of separation <clears throat> is so key in terms of the the problems that are manifesting in the world. So one of the things we are really focused on with the John Mack Institute, because even well before the abduction phenomenon, uh, John Mack was very well known for trying to bring about cultural change. And he was really activist around uh, nuclear technology and disarmament in the 80s, for instance. And what became really clear to me, basically in these downloads, because one thing I didn't mention yet was I had this experience where I was invited to this private retreat at the Monroe Institute uh, in last year. And while we were there, we were basically engaging in CE5 or heist protocols, as well as using out-of-body kind of protocols as well. And we actually saw things uh, on, on all three nights. And ever since then, for me, it feels like, like a telepathic kind of lock happened where these ideas will come to me. Sometimes it would even be in the case, uh, in, in the way that it would be like a I would have a sense that something had been downloaded, but it hadn't been like filtered through to my consciousness yet, but it's waiting there to be sort of revealed. And one of those that became really clear to me, and it's, it's a very 
it's very clear to me that it wasn't my usual way of generating a thought. Like it's it, the way it comes in is different and just feels different. But basically it was this notion that yes, we need a new model for how to do human civilization. We, we absolutely need a new economic model. We need to have new energy structures, those kind of things. But what was really made clear to me was that unless we fundamentally change how we see ourselves though, and our relationship to everything else and everyone else, those great models will also eventually collapse on themselves because our fundamental error is the illusion of separation. And you can't, you can't prepare for the future of, you know, this broader cosmic community and engagement with it while you still have that fundamental error in place. So with essence of being, it's about basically through the combination of, workshop retreats and online courses and a combination of the two, as well as some coaching that I do for people, basically helping people shift that perspective and evolve that perspective. And again, so much of it being about practices that we do together, both individually, small group, and as a large group, to basically help people find this re-enchantment with reality again and begin to have experiences with being more than their small self. And because of my, my, uh, my understanding, the more people get hints of it in their own experience, the more they begin to embrace it. Because so much of this is about getting beyond conceptualization, getting beyond, in Western civilization, going back to you know Europe, uh, we had this sort of divorce from our mind and our body. And we, we mm-hmm. live in this like referential way of, of interacting with reality where we assume the, not only the whole Don Hoffman thing, around uh, we already are seeing some sort of translation, right? But on top of that, we have embraced almost wholeheartedly without question that these conceptions we have are somehow the real thing, right? And in so doing, and in that need for closure, we've, and our need for not having that open-endedness we talked about earlier, we've lost this direct interaction with reality. And so for me, what I, what I found as I began to interact with reality that way is that there's a vast field of information. And that when I started practicing with some people close with me, what I call radical transparency, which is about not just not lying, but it's about not, you know, engaging in lies by omission, white lies, um, Mm -hmm. you know, marketing, advertising, shtick, those kind of things. But you actually try to just really behave and operate in reality as it really is cleanly with no overlay, with no conception that wants to close down what's available, then actually you become aware, like the volume turns up and there's all this information around like subtle information and these ever more increasingly subtle like levels of reality as you dive in and you can kind of use a microscope and there's more information and more information. And as I began to practice that, even when I'm talking to people now, I can hear them talking and it's almost like I can see this waveform and it's when they're like, you know, they're, they're expressing their, their essential self. It's high. And then when they start speaking by convention or what they think they're supposed to say or what they should say, I see it drop or I experience it dropping kind of thing. So the idea is to, is to actually help people practice radical transparency to feel like they're in a safe context where they can do that. And and then begin to experience these broader aspects of reality. So not only does that encourage people to go and maybe practice CE5 and heist, but being aware of their sort of energetic configuration when they do that. Because one of the things I like to point out is that if you're going to try to make these contacts, uh, like you're going to try to take the, the front foot and be proactive about it, then you need to have this energetic awareness about what you're emitting into the field because there's like goes to like in the sense that if you 
you know, are still frustrated that someone cut you off in traffic earlier in the day, that negative energy is actually sending a signature kind of thing into what is in the beyond kind of thing. So tuning people into energetic awareness about themselves and the field of information that's available subtly is, is really central to what essence of being is all about. And, and again, primarily because my sense is that while we do need new models, we will not get past the sort of the, the, the bottleneck we're facing if we don't fundamentally shift our understanding of who we are. Makes sense. And I have it here. Of course, I'll have it on the show notes for those on audio. This is the, where you want to send people, essenceofbeing.info. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I just finished a, a three-month, 12-week uh, online class called Expanding Awareness. Where we also all sorts of practices that we use. So it's a combination of some curriculum I teach, but then also group interaction and small group interaction. Then people practice this in their everyday life and coming back and talk about their experience. Um, there's an online Discord community where we ongoingly talk about the process as well. <clears throat> So in the new year, I'll be offering that class again. People can do, it's a virtual class. So people from all around the world took it. And it forms such a cohesive group that that still, after the class is finished, are still engaging with each other. And it was kind of a combination of, in each session would be a, a guided meditation and then some curriculum and then some some interaction and some small group practices, basically. And it was so powerful in terms of, we would actually practice creating this shared field of intention. And this became like a thing unto itself, like almost like an egregore kind of thing, you know, mm. where, where people could draw from this even throughout their week when they were like, I really want to you know, behave and act from radical transparency. Because again, mm. one of the fundamental aspects of that and what I teach is that this is the way reality actually is, is that everything's connected, Right. And again, quantum mechanics tells that, Vedantic philosophy tells us that, um, many of these others communicate that, but it's these subtle lies, these subtle misrepresentations of truth, the lack of fidelity to the truth that prevent us from being in that connection and that field kind of thing. And so that's the idea is to, to, to do that so that we can actually have that experience. And absolutely, Essence of Being is where I point people to. That class is going to be offered again in the new year. And then I also have various retreats that I'm hosting around the world, too, because it's even more powerful in a way when people can get together in person and actually experience this as well. Wonderful, wonderful. And uh, once again, your podcast, for those that might not have caught it at the beginning of the show. So there's two podcasts. The first one is called Point of Convergence. And that's on all the usual podcast platforms. It's also on my YouTube channel, which is slash exoacademian. And I have a, and that's basically, I take different topics. Again, speaking of the title, point of convergence, mostly the UFO phenomenon, but also these other aspects, psi phenomena, near-death experience, out-of-body experience. What is this all pointing towards in terms of the nature of reality? And then a second podcast I have is called Liminal Frames. Liminal Frames with the frame spelt P-H. It's sort mm-hmm. of like giving a nod to phenomenon there. And that's basically a conversation between a friend of mine and myself. And we basically in, engage with these same topics as well as like religious history and how that, again, collapses and transcends in terms of what what is manifesting here. Very cool. Yeah, check it out, people, because I, I, I listened to a couple episodes and it was fascinating, especially when you're talking about the different types of aliens, the insectoids, reptilians, uh, right. greys. It was... It was uh, it was a good conversation because you really broke it down where it's like, oh, right. yeah, 
Good cataloging. Well, Vance, anything before we uh, take off on our ship tonight? No, I don't dare. <laughs> There's so many questions I could ask. But uh, maybe maybe this one. Uh, Darren, uh, what, what's your definition, working definition of consciousness? So I would say, speaking to what we've been discussing, I would say that consciousness is primary. Consciousness is the bedrock, the substrate from which everything else manifests. I see it more as as dreamscape. So I'm very much sort of in, in the line of Bernardo Castrop in this, in the sense that you have original source consciousness and fundamentally everything that manifests from there is that ultimately. So there's All there is is consciousness. There's not matter and consciousness. That matter is just the way consciousness looks in a certain configuration. And, and basically that helps us understand uh, what's going on uh, in all these different, you know, kinds of phenomena we're talking about. So basically I very much uh, agree with Bernardo and I like his analogy that we are like disassociated alters of original source consciousness. I would even go further than Bernardo. Bernardo is kind of taking the academic approach and sticking to what he can argue with philosophically in his circles, which I understand that's, that's kind of what he feels called to but I think even when you look at reincarnation studies, even many of the people who actually not only encounter aliens, but have memories of past lives or simultaneous lives as aliens on different planets, right? Many of the people who first encounter these others go from the ontological shock of this particular uh, finite being having a hard time dealing with this. But then it's like this deeper awareness comes in. Wait a second. I knew these beings. I knew these beings before I ever came into this incarnation. So like you talked about earlier, Right. life and death uh, comes into this too. Uh, you know, in the Whitley Strieber letters, there were cases where gray aliens would show up with someone's deceased relative, right? So, so all of these things collapse <laughs> somehow. Um, and, yeah. and, but, but fundamentally it's about the different others, the different uh, ways that we manifest all being like fractal impressions of original source consciousness is the way I make sense of it. That's cool. One way I'll leave you with this. One way uh, I used to tell people is that I'm a multi-solipsist. I'm the only person in the world, but so is everybody else. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, it's been a great conversation for everybody. Darren King was on the show. Uh, again, there will be a replay on all channels. We will get the rumble thing or the rock fin or I'll be back on YouTube, whatever it is. We will have live shows. But it was a good audience there on Facebook. Quite a few people showed up. But, yeah, it will be out on all podcast providers tomorrow. Please support the show. Please check out Darren's work. And, uh, yeah, let's keep waking up together. So, Darren, it was awesome having you on. And we certainly look forward to the next time. Thank you very much for coming on AM Byte. Guys, it was a pleasure. I look forward to the next time as well. You bet. All right, for everybody else, yeah, enjoy the rest of your uh the rest of your evening, the rest of the week, and I hope you find a woman standing at the front of your bed, unless you called her for some no, just kidding. For some strange <laughs> reason. <laughs> but regardless, keep looking at the stars. You are part of the stars, and everybody, please have a good night. Take care. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. 
Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.